Get ready to explore faith, doubt, and all that's in between. Welcome to Doubting It with Charlotte Pence Bond. Hello, everyone. I'm Charlotte Pence Bond, and welcome to Doubting It on the Edify Podcast Network. Uh, Today, I am joined by my friend, Bethany Mandel. She is amazing. We have worked together a little bit in the past. She's a producer. She's an editor. She's a writer. And uh, most importantly, she is a wife and a mother. Um, She actually converted to Orthodox Judaism later in life, um, which we'll talk about in depth in this interview. But our conversation does go into some sensitive adult topics. And so I just want to let you know that there are some themes of abuse in this episode. If you have little ones around or you are sensitive to this topic yourself, please be aware of that. Thank you so much for joining us in what I think is a very important conversation. All right. Well, welcome to Bethany Mandel. Thank you for coming on this podcast. This is just really special and cool for me, especially because we've worked together before. And so for the tables to kind of be turned a little bit, (laughs) yeah, I'm excited to kind of dive into your faith journey and your story. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that and a little bit about just what you do right now, day to day? I know you do a lot of different things. You wear a lot of hats. I do. (laughs) So I, so the easier part of that question is what I do on a day-to-day basis. So I am an editor at Ricochet, which is a community sort of conversation site. And also we have a podcast network. And so we work together on developing a kids podcast together. Mm-hmm. And I am also a mom of four kids, f- uh, six years old and under. So six, five, three, one. Oh. Yeah. And, uh, and we homeschool. So um, I don't sleep, but <laughs> one day I will again. We kind of joke that we purposefully put them so close together so that we wouldn't get used to sleeping again and so we could just (laughs) it could just flow right into the other because it would be a real tease to start sleeping again and after seven years of not um that's like us we're three in under three so we're like at for a couple months out of the year we're like 25 26 27 um actually right now we are but you guys are really close though right yeah yeah it's so awesome yeah no my parents and they've like they weren't even sure they could have kids at all. Oh, and wow. they were like had three in a row and they were like, all right, we'll take oh it. My, so, gosh. Um, my mom always says it's the absolute funnest time ever. She loved it. Oh, so. I'm so glad. See, that's how you can tell people are good people when they actually like their children. Cause there's a lot of people who don't. <laughs> I love it now too. I love being close in age to my siblings. Cause yeah. we all got married basically within like a couple years of each other. Yeah. Married and I mean, God willing not to like jinx you, but like then they'll have, you know, cousins all close together right. in age. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your family then and your kind of your faith journey. It's super bizarro. So um, (laughs) my parents got divorced when I was three and um, faith was like, I I would say the foundation of their divorce. Um, So my parents got married when they were pretty young and um, my dad was Jewish. My mom was Catholic and family lore, which I now have no way of verifying because everyone involved is dead. So I'm just going to present it as fact and no one can deny it. (laughs) My dad went to a Catholic church to try to pick up Catholic girls because he heard that that was easier 
than Jewish mm-hmm. girls. And he was right. All so right. <laughs> he and my mom brought home a Jewish guy and horrified her parents. And so it was like a win-win. They both got <laughs> to like really just upset the apple cart. Mm-hmm. And so they got married and my dad's parents refused to come to the wedding because it was in a Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad converted in just name only to Catholicism for my mother's sake so she could have the church wedding that she really wanted to have. But my dad didn't actually like become Catholic. He just sort of went through the process for the sake of my mother's dream wedding. So they didn't think they were going to have kids. And so it didn't matter. And then uh, my mom had lupus, which is an autoimmune disorder. And she hit a remission point when she was 28. And her doctor said, you know, based on sort of the cycle of your remissions, and and I can give a rough estimate that I think that you're going to be in remission for about a year. So if you want to have a kid, you need to do it now because your your remissions are becoming less frequent and shorter in length. So this is your shot. If you want it, take it. And so my mom got pregnant. My mom didn't want to have kids and my dad did. Mm -hmm. And my mom gave it a go thinking it wouldn't happen. So she went off birth control. And usually it takes a couple months to get that Mm -hmm. out of your system and to start ovulating. Um, But my mom didn't. (laughs) She had it. She got pregnant first shot. And so then she was like, oh, crap. I didn't really intend for that to happen. And it was interesting because my mom was super pro-choice and had had abortions previous to me and had had abortions after me. But the doctor told her that I was going to be born severely disabled and incompatible with life and that she should have an immediate abortion and she could try one more time to try to get into the window. And she said, no, I'm not playing God like that. And she, I mean, I'm obviously compatible with life. (laughs) Things worked out just fine. Um, And it was just a bad ultrasound. Um, I mean, things like that still happen today. Um, I was told with my fourth child that she had a heart defect at my first ultrasound. And then Mm -hmm. I went back and they were like, oh, take back. She's fine. So yeah, so they had me and uh, this part I've, I've independently verified with other family members there was a lot of fighting about if I was going to be baptized as Catholic. Mm -hmm. And it took a long time for my parents to agree. And finally, my dad said, I'm going to go out of town this weekend. And whatever happens that weekend is not in my control. And so my mom scheduled my baptism for that weekend. And it was a very much don't ask, don't tell situation for them. But obviously, that's not how to have a marriage. And so things started getting more uncomfortable as like Christmas came around. And my dad was like, I don't, I don't want to do this. This is not, I never pictured having a Christmas tree with my kids in the house. And my mom was like, justifiably was like, well, you married me in a Catholic church. I'm not sure what you were expecting. And so when I was three, it hit the fan for several reasons. A huge reason was, was the faith aspect And so my parents got a divorce and within the divorce agreement, it said that I had to be able to choose of my own free will. And so um, I was three. And then when I was seven, my mom signed me up for whatever Catholic girls do when they're seven. I think it's like confirmation or I don't know. First communion. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 That sounds right. Mm -hmm. So my mom signed me up and I remember being really freaked out. And really creeped out by all the hanging Jesuses. And um, I had walked in on my both of my parents with their respective new people in their lives doing the thing that leads to babies. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, God did not do that with Mary. 
that is not a thing that happened. I, mm. that is gross. And, Cause I was seven. Yeah. And so I was like, tell me more about this, like Judaism thing about my dad. And at that point I was, I was estranged from my father justifiably. And my mom was like, well, they're Jews are known as the people of the book. And I'm like, I love books. Tell me more. Mm -hmm. And she was like, oh, well, you know, your favorite soup, the matzo ball soup I make for you, that's Jewish. And I was like, I'm sold. <laughs> like books and soup. Mm -hmm. I don't know what else there is. And so <laughs> I was like seven years old. And on this super duper superficial level, I was like, now I'm Jewish. And my mom, to my mom's credit, she was like, okay. And she totally respected it. And I, mm -hmm. I'm just like in awe of her now because she never pushed back. She never, I mean, she, I, I kept on saying like, I'm Jewish. And she said, okay, let's go to a Seder. I'll get my friend to invite us. And mm -hmm. she would make sure that I would have like Jewish holidays at her friend's houses. And she would invite us over to Playpool and be like, oh, my daughter says she's Jewish. Can we come for Passover Seder? Can we come for Rosh Hashanah? And, and so we did. Mm -hmm. And my mom raised me Jewish. It was like the weirdest thing ever. The, the faith thing caused her divorce. And yet when I said for very stupid reasons, I wanted to be Jewish, she was like, okay, I support you. And she did 100%. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I was a brat. Like I, I, she was disabled towards the end of her life when I was in my teens and she wanted a Christmas tree. And I was like, I am Jewish and I will not set up a Christmas tree. And it was nasty. I like, I should have just set up my disabled mother's Christmas tree. Like, why did I not? It was, I, I'm mad at myself about it. But so that, and that was basically it. I um, always thought of myself as Jewish and jumped in whole hog and said, okay, this is it. And then when I hit college, I started looking for schools that had strong Jewish communities and strong Jewish studies departments. And I ended up at Rutgers. And then when I was there, I found out, oh, oops, actually Judaism is a matrilineal thing and your mother has to be Jewish. Your father doesn't matter. And so then I was suddenly like, oh crap, I've spent my whole life um, thinking I'm Jewish, but it turns out I'm not. And so that sort of led to a whole yucky thing where I had to decide what I wanted to be and, and that I would have to convert. And that, that was a multi-year process of trying to figure out um, what I wanted to do and, and where I wanted to be Jewishly and how to convert because the conversion process in Judaism is not simple <laughs> by design. I mean, sort of by design. They do, Judaism doesn't seek converts. And so they don't make it easy. Um, but it's also just, it's a very complicated, overly political process um, mm -hmm. that also involves the Israeli government and the rabbinate. And it's like, it's a whole mess. It, it's so opposite from Christians and Mormons and everyone else who are like, come join us. We'll make it so easy. And Jews are like, you probably don't want to do this. <laughs> That's so interesting. Yeah. I've, I've known a couple people to convert to Judaism, but it's like you said, I feel like it's very rare. Yeah. And the matrilineal aspect is so interesting because was that hard for you too, knowing that you would have to convert so your kids would be Jewish? I mean, yeah. was that part of... Yeah. That, was a, that was a huge part of it because there's three streams of Judaism. There's reform, which is the least observant. And that's not a value judgment. There's, um, there's mm -hmm. mitzvahs that you have to observe according to Orthodox Judaism. Mm -hmm. And so like you observe the Sabbath by not cooking, by not driving, by not spending money, by not using uh, electronics. And so conservative Jews do some of that and don't do some of it. And then reformed Jews don't do any of it. And it's sort of like 
the heart of Judaism instead of the ritualistic aspects of it. Mm-hmm. And so reform conversions are not recognized by the other two movements. Conservative conversions are recognized by the conservative movement and the reform movement. And then orthodox conversions are accepted by everyone and also Israel. Mm-hmm. And so I came to the determination, like I wanted my conversion to be an open and shut case And if I wanted to move to Israel or if I wanted my children to be able to move to Israel, I wanted them to have no issues. And so I decided to convert Orthodox because it's the most, it's the, it's the gold standard. It's, it's the Mm -hmm. hardest conversion to achieve usually. Right. And so how was that conversion process for you? And, and kind of how did that play into your faith journey? Because I know that definitely has been probably an impact on you even now and going along with the idea of doubt and kind of having questions about, about religion and about faith, how did that come up during your conversion process? So my process was kind of complicated because I wanted the Israeli acceptance overarching. There was a list of rabbis that even if there's there's a sort of central authority that are accepted by everyone, including Israel, but conversions, especially American conversions, have a way of becoming invalidated in people's eyes retroactively. Mm-hmm. And so even if I went with that central organ, there was no guarantee that a rug wouldn't be pulled out from under me at some point. And so I decided to work off a list that the Israeli rabbinate, which is like the sort of triumvirate of rabbis in Israel, who are like the most powerful rabbis in Israel and who who set the determination for who is and who is not Jewish. So they released a list of these are the independent rabbis that we trust outside of the centralized body, which is called the RCA, the uh, Rabbinic Council of America. Um, outside of that body, this there's an independent list that they trust. And so I wanted to work off that list because even if the centralization situation became retroactively invalidated, I wanted to be able to have a rabbi who had a gold seal from Israel. So I went through the list and I just started calling people. And every single rabbi on that list said they only did conversions for people who were adopting babies and Mm -hmm. they would not do an adult conversion because uh, they're complicated, they're time intensive, and they have a way of, I mean, the most famous Orthodox convert is Ivanka Trump. And anytime anyone gets mad at Ivanka Trump, people confront her rabbi. How dare you let her become Jewish? And so rabbis know that that's a thing that happens a lot. If people decide they don't like the convert anymore, they attack the rabbi. And so mm-hmm. in turn, a lot of rabbis won't do conversions anymore because they're like, I'm, I'm not signing up to be a punching bag if something goes wrong with this convert later down the line. Mm-hmm. And Rabbi Luxin also was impossible to get in touch with because I tried. So the only rabbi who responded to me was he actually ran the centralized body Um, the RCA conversions in all of America. So he was like the absolute gold standard because he ran, he he ran all of the conversions in America. Basically he was the the top of the committee for the centralized body. And he was on the independent Israeli list. And he was the only person on that list who responded to my emails. And so anyway, so I approached this rabbi and he said, yes. And so I moved to Washington and he ran in the Orthodox community here And so I moved here to convert with him. And uh, it was a really unpleasant year. He Mm -hmm. was really manipulative 
and unkind and didn't ever make clear what the standards were or what the timeline was. And so at that point, I was dating my husband and I would I wanted to get married. I wanted to be done with my conversion. I had already read all of the books and I knew all the things and I was committed. And I, I approached him at the point where I felt like I was ready to be done. And then he was like, oh, you got at least a year in front of you. It was at least a year, but it could have been two years. He, he never gave me a timeline. So it was, um, it was a really stressful, really awful year converting. And it was, it was really um, emotionally and spiritually and every, every kind of heart. You're listening to the Edify Podcast Network. We'll be right back. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app. This is the Edify Podcast Network. Welcome back. And so that kind of leads me to kind of my next question about that experience and that rabbi specifically, because there were things that came out later on and you testified against him. Um, and and can you talk a little bit about that as much as you yeah. want to, but then also kind of where that lands you now? I mean, yeah. this, you know, abuse in religious communities and in, you know, obviously the Catholic church yeah. we've seen so much of, um, and I'm, you know, curious to see how that impacts one's faith and how uh, you can move on from that, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's, um, how you move on from that is still a question mark in my Mm -hmm. life, honestly. Mm -hmm. Um, so I converted and then I think about four years after my conversion, he got arrested and it was on a voyeurism charge. And we found out it had something to do with the mikvah. Uh, the mikvah is a spiritual, bath, basically. Um, It's very similar, and I think Christians get the idea from baptism in water from the mikveh. It's a a body of water that is basically rainwater. And in in Orthodox Judaism in in modern times, there is an indescript building, usually within a block of the synagogue. And where I used to live in New Jersey, it was like in a house. Like, you would literally never know. And so you go in, and so there's several reasons for when you use the mikvah um, at the end of a woman's menstrual cycle, if, if they're married before they can resume having relations with their husband is, is the most frequent use for the mikvah. Mm-hmm. Um, people often use it to purify themselves before the high holidays um, and then for conversions. So when I converted, um, he had people uh, take a practice trip to the mikvah, which is not normative and was strange mm-hmm. at the time. But I mean, he's the expert of experts. And so we all trusted him. Um, and then you take a trip at your conversion to the mikvah. And so we found out several years after my conversion that he had been setting up a secret camera in the bathroom of the mikvah. So when you're mm-hmm. taking a shower, because this is a communal bath, and so people have to be super duper clean. Mm-hmm. And so 
there's a shower that you're supposed to like meticulously clean yourself before you go in. Mm -hmm. And so we found out that he had been placing multiple secret cameras in that bathroom to capture converts. And um, he was also a professor at Towson. And so he was also taping his students who took sort of informational trips to the mikvah, which is completely not okay. Um, But he wanted them in the bathroom so that he Mm -hmm. could get the videos. And so he had taped, I think the number was about 150 of us. um, But because of the statute of limitations for voyeurism, he only got charged, I think, like 54 times is the number. Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually fall within the statute of limitations because it was too far gone. Mm -hmm. Um, So that began a process of, of, several years of um, he was tried, he got a plea deal, and then he was sentenced eventually. I mean, not eventually, it was actually pretty soon after to six and a half years in prison. Um, Mm -hmm. He served about, I can tell you because my second child was a newborn. He was two months old at the sentencing and he got out during COVID. So five years, he served Mm -hmm. five years. And he actually lives in my town. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, We live outside of Washington now. And when he was released because of COVID, he doesn't have anywhere to, like, he's divorced now. He doesn't have a relationship with his children as far as I know. Mm-hmm. I mean, none of them took them in, took him in. And so he knew someone in my community who is letting him use their apartment. Mm-hmm. And so I got, a, I mean, I, I figured that he was going to end up here because that was sort of the rumor mill. And then I got a call from a friend a couple, I want to say like a month ago and said like, just FYI, I saw Barry Freundell at the apartment building that is next to this the supermarket. And I was, okay, good to know. And so every time I go into a supermarket now, uh, every time I drive by the kosher restaurants, I mean, this happened to me the other day. I drove by a guy who looked just like him, and I thought to myself, God, that guy looks like Barry Freundell. And I was like, he could be Barry Freundell. Yeah. And so I slowed down, and it, I don't think it was. Mm-hmm. Um but now there's like that whole added landmine in my life because this person mm-hmm. who like so betrayed a lot of people, um, it really sent shockwaves through the entire Jewish community, but especially mm-hmm. in Washington. Um, now he lives here, um, which is is really terrible for a lot of people, including his ex-wife and his daughter who live here. Yeah, I, I, I'm not an expert on this at all, but I feel like five years does not feel very long for something so planned out and and that's affected obviously so many people and within it just feels especially obviously you know any kind of religious leader abuse is is terrible but when you have religious leader abuse um it's it's even just has another horrific yeah aspect because this person is a symbol of of somebody's faith. Yeah. And he was for a lot of people. Yeah. So it actually is a lot considering the crime that he, he was convicted of. Um, We were told at the sentencing to brace ourselves for him getting off. It was within the realm of possibility. And so we were told as, as a class of victims to come to the sentencing and really just tell the judge what this did. And I think it was, I think the severity of his sentencing was, I think 50% our testimonies. There was about 15 of us who spoke and it was retching. It was like out of a movie kind of experience. And so there was, I think that was half of it. And the other half was 
the way that he behaved between his arrest and his sentencing was so was so clearly he was so unapologetic that the judge was just like no this is not this is not someone i'm playing ball with mm-hmm. and so he sentenced him to six and a half years and he served five mm-hmm. but i mean the, the the testimonies at the at the sentencing were just horrifying we found out over the last the course of the last six years or so and we're we're hitting up on the sixth anniversary of his arrest it was right after yom kippur <laughs> like literally two weeks later, um, which is the day of repentance. And he had been setting up the camera for years and years and years. And then um, the woman who was volunteering at the mikvah noticed it and didn't really know what it was. And he was behaving weirdly. And she had a, a sixth sense that was remarkable. Mm-hmm. And she approached the shul president, the synagogue president, and said, this is weird. And the two of them together sort of researched what this clock radio could be. And then they they came upon the the determination that they thought it was a they thought it was a secret camera, which is an incredible leap to make of of a, your rabbi of 20 years, but they both made it. Mm-hmm. And so they contacted the local law enforcement and lawyers and they all said, keep an eye out for it. And if it comes back, call us and we'll we'll execute a warrant and we'll be there immediately. And so they spent two weeks waiting and Yom Kippur passed and they they both sat there and it, several people in the synagogue sat there because at that point it had involved other members of the board and lawyers that went to the synagogue. And so maybe half a dozen people sat there during Yom Kippur services where he's standing up there talking about repentance and sins. And they sat there thinking like, is this guy setting up a secret camera in the bathroom? They they were pretty sure, but they weren't totally sure. And then I think it was two weeks later, they found it again and he set it up. And so they snagged it and got a got in a warrant to look at the the drive. And they determined that it was what they thought it was. And he was arrested the next morning. Um, mm-hmm. But it, the over the course of the last six years now, there's been so many stories of people getting divorced because of it, because a lot of people decided to stop being Orthodox. And some of them stopped being Jews Mm -hmm. in general. And they were people very close to him. They were people who converted with him. They were people who were his students. The shockwaves are innumerable. And it all sort of stemmed from that one incident. And and it uh, it was an insurmountable shock for a lot of people. Yeah. So coming out of that, and I mean, still, I mean, still so recent. Um, yeah. I mean, how have you dealt with that? Have you like, how have you kind of not moved on necessarily, but how have you, you know, uh, I don't know, have you found community as the community come around these people as what has been the, the kind of result for you? Yeah. I mean, it, I think it's still, I think it's still a question mark for me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think I'm, I'm so, I'm six years out almost, mm-hmm. and I'm still sort of figuring out. I mean, I've always considered myself Jewish, and I will always be Jewish. It's mm-hmm. like this thing that has been in me for as long as I can remember at this point. Mm-hmm. But the Orthodox thing is a question. When I was living in New Jersey, that's when his arrest happened. Mm-hmm. And I felt extremely disconnected from the Orthodox community when I was living there because no one reached out to me. Mm-hmm. No one um, – I, I felt very isolated. I felt like this – earthquake had happened to just me. And, um, and it was really, really hard. Um, and I felt like I wanted to completely dissociate myself from the Orthodox community. And I did. 
We stopped going to synagogue. We, we didn't do anything in the Jewish community. And we sort of had our bubble of our family and we were Jewish within that bubble. But even within that bubble, I wasn't I wasn't totally orthodox and I wasn't sure what I wanted to be. And my husband, God bless him, was like really understanding of like, you have to figure out what you are comfortable with, but this is us no matter what. And whatever you're comfortable with is what we'll figure out. And mm-hmm. this is this is our family and our family comes first and we'll figure it out. And the mm-hmm. space that he gave me to figure it out gave me a lot of faith that it could be worked out. If he had been like, absolutely not. I married you because you said you would be Orthodox and you will be Orthodox and you will have to be perfectly Orthodox. And this is the, I think we would have gotten divorced. I Mm -hmm. I think that we would have been one of those people who got divorced and I never would have considered returning to Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. Um, Then we moved here two years ago and we sort of dipped our toes in the water of the community a little bit. And we just decided like, we had a good thing going in New Jersey. Let's just not rock the boat. And then weirdly, when his release happened, we were getting sort of whispers of it beforehand from people who who knew the prosecutors and and whatnot. And so I was willing, I was ready to go on the offensive. I was, I was, I had contacted the Washington Post and was like, I'm going to write an op-ed, and I'm going to say this community needs to. 100% dissociate and disavow him and be so clear. And so I started contacting local rabbis and I was like, what's your plan? And they had already written statements prepared. And the statements were unequivocally, he is not welcome in the building. He mm-hmm. will be removed if necessary by force. He is not welcome in, in any establishments. And so every rabbi and every communal leader that I approached ready to confront them with to fight because we had heard that he was going to end up here. Every, every single person was like, Oh yeah, no, we got it. (laughs) We're, we're on the same page. Mm -hmm. And when he was officially released, every single synagogue issued simultaneous statements. He is not welcome in our building. He will Mm -hmm. never be allowed to pray here. He will never be allowed to come. If there's a wedding in this building, he will not be allowed to come. Um, So every single communal organization and synagogue immediately said he is dead to us. And mm-hmm. and it was because he had, he had not just betrayed me, but he had betrayed countless other people in this community because we live in a suburb of Washington. And so everyone who lives here, I would say half of us used to live in that community and felt completely violated by him. Mm-hmm. So it, it was not just me who felt like I was a victim. There's, there's a million victims in this community, including his ex-wife mm-hmm. and who had no idea and his daughter who had no idea and their lives have been even more crushed than mine was. So that communal response was so heartening to me because I felt like when I was living in New Jersey, no one took it seriously and no one cared. And now here it was like, oh, this is a community that takes this very seriously. And it felt like mm-hmm. it was like a whole new world. And, and I also had long conversations with the rabbi here. And for the first time since his arrest, actually had like sort of a, a pastoral conversation that I had never had with a mm-hmm. rabbi since mm-hmm. his arrest. And I said, like, what do I do if I run into him with my kids? And, and I, I would never have asked that were, had we not had a 45-minute conversation where I was like, tell me your plan. And mm-hmm. after he was more strident than I would have expected him to be, I was like, okay, so can I ask you, what do I do <laughs> if I, like, I'm in the supermarket and I'm with my four kids and he walks by me? Like, what, 
what do I do? And so, um, and so it's kind of like weird in this moment of COVID because I don't know when we're going to be able to go back to us to the synagogue. And I don't know when we're going to be able to rejoin this community in a meaningful way, but more than ever before, I feel like I'm actually part of a community, which is weird because there's not been an opportunity to meet in person in the last six months. And I don't know when we will ever again. Right. I mean, eventually we will, like eventually this will pass, but. But that's interesting. I mean, it's, it's almost like the community is more, um, it's more of like a, a sense of community. That's the most important thing. Yeah. You can go to synagogue every week, you can go to church every week, you can go to small group, whatever, and you can feel like there's no community at all. And it's really, it's really it's inspiring that they all have come around, not just protecting the actual victims, but protecting anybody from, yeah. from this and from the reverberations of it. Because yeah. Um, that's really the upsetting thing and, and the impact that it has on faith. How, and you, you mentioned your kids and your family, how has, I guess, Orthodox Judaism and Judaism in general kind of been a pillar in your family? How have you kind of, I mean, obviously it's something very important to you all, but how is that something that's kind of, I don't know, something that you're going to pass down or how will you not necessarily talk to them about this, but just about your journey in general with this because it's a very unique journey but in the same way I feel that a lot of people can relate to this kind of experience even if it's not actual abuse but it's it's just kind of losing faith in an institution and kind of asking the question of what happens after that yeah so it's interesting I think that I would put about 50 percent of my coming back feelings on the community and I would put the other 50% on my kids because I'm homeschooling them. And so their Jewish education, and, and we were homeschooling before COVID, we'll homeschool after COVID. This was a, a life decision that we had made independent of what's going on, mm-hmm. but their education is 100% in my hands. And so I always wanted to raise my children with faith. And that was a lot of the reason why I converted in the first place and why I wanted to be Orthodox in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so my, my conversion process was not good. It was not well done. I did not learn enough. Not surprising that like this guy had other focuses and it was mm-hmm. not teaching people. And so I have felt like with everything, not just with Judaism, but with history and math, like I'm learning with my kids and I'm realizing mm-hmm. the holes in my education mm-hmm. in a million ways. Mm-hmm. Um and I love homeschooling them because I feel like it's it's really enriching me on a sort of academic level, whatever that is for a grown woman, but also on a spiritual level. And so when we talk about when we talk about um, the blessings over food, my kids are now they're they're like okay, well, what's the blessing over this food? What's the blessing over this food? And, and they always want to do blessings over food now. Mm-hmm. And that's not something that I ne- have done ever really. And so we talk about why, and we talk about, you know, God grew this to keep us nourished and to keep us, to keep us here. And we should be mindful of it. And we should not just be mindful of the food that, that Hashem, like that God made for us, but also that our bodies are capable of breaking it down and and using it and there's there's so much to it and so these conversations have made my children really enthusiastic about making blessings about praying about learning uh, about the Torah and learning about holidays and they're they're very innocent very enthusiastic quest for 
knowledge and for spirituality and for connection um, has really driven me to to want to have more of that, to have that innocent sort of like, oh, this is what it was like for me before my conversion, before I felt like yeah. it was kind of like ripped away from me. And so I'm sort of re- coming to my faith from a really beautiful place of innocence and enthusiasm that my, my kids are giving me. And, and I think I'm getting just as much out of it as they are. Yeah. You know, that's, that's so interesting. Cause I feel like that's very true. I don't have kids, but I, I noticed that in myself when, when you see someone learning something or kind of discovering it for the first time, I do think it can kind of bring that back to you and that kind of that innocent awe of God and, and of spirituality is just really cool. My last kind of question for you has to do with you, you talked about a little bit in this moment of COVID and the pandemic and everything. In what ways have you found God in this moment and kind of not knowing what the future might hold or having moments of, have you had moments of, of doubt and questioning during this? I, I think that I'm not particularly moved by COVID or upset by it. Yeah. Like in part because everyone who I really care about who is at risk is extremely careful. And so I'm not mm-hmm. scared for them. Yeah. We are not at risk. Our lives have been unchanged, bordering on made better because my husband has been working from home full time and it's been an absolute delight having him around. And I never mm-hmm. want him to go back to the office full time. <laughs> and so I this COVID moment, and we also, we already homeschooled. And so it hasn't actually been a huge change for us. But I I think a lot of it, I mean, so my parents both actually passed, and I didn't really mention this, my parents both passed away when I was 16 and 19. Mm -hmm. And so when that kind of thing happens, it puts everything else in perspective. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, yeah, I mean, things are not great. But in our circle, things are fine. Everyone is healthy, yeah. we have an income. It is more or less unchanged. I mean, things are a little tighter, but I mean, God God knows it's a lot worse for most other people. Mm-hmm. And so we'll get through it because we always get through it. And this is in the scope of things in my life, like really not even a blip. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, you know, because my husband's home, I'm like, we can do anything. We're fine. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah, you know, I think that it's... Um, it's interesting. I mean, it's there's unknown in the t- this time, but at the same time, I feel like you know everything actually is always unknown. You can't really plan tomorrow, and I think that that's yeah. part of when you learn that early on. You know that you know that things can yes. change in the blink of an eye, and you start to to re- realize. At least for me, you know, I've realized. Okay, I thought maybe I could plan this year out, but I never actually. Did. <laughs> that was that yes. was an illusion that I was buying into. And so you're kind of learning now, okay, well, you know what? Um, I don't know, next time around, I'll, I'll put less stock maybe in the plans, you know? Like you said, I mean, we're okay. I think recognizing that every day is a gift yeah. and that we were never promised tomorrow. COVID right. or not, we were never promised tomorrow. If this is the thing that takes you down, something was going to take you down. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, like not it to be COVID when I'm 34, but God only knows what's going to be when I'm 74. Yeah, that's so true. Um, and I think that's that's an awesome thing to end on, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much yeah. for uh, for joining me today and joining this conversation. It just was really fun for me. Yeah, me too.
Thank you so much, Bethany, for joining me for that uh, amazing conversation. I really appreciate it. I feel like I've learned a lot and um, also just have a lot to think about now, honestly. And uh, I'm, I'm inspired by your story and by the story of faith and community in these difficult times. Thank you to our audience for tuning in and be sure to listen next week for another exciting exploration of all the different complicated and truly beautiful parts of our faith journeys. Thanks for listening to Doubting It with Charlotte Pence Bond on the Edify Podcast Network. Tune in next time for another powerful exploration of faith, doubt, and all that's in between. And for more faith-inspiring podcasts, download the Edify Podcast app on the Apple and Google Play stores or at edify.app.